Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Lavinia Alberi-Alber. Dr. Alberi-Alber is a dedicated neuroscientist driven by a passion for scientific progress and the advancement of therapeutics for dementia. Currently serving as the director and lead at the Swiss Integrative Center for Human Health, she plays a pivotal role in directing the neurology research and biobank platform. Lavinia is also the founder of Vitalize DX, a company that focuses on personalized health and wellness solutions. Additionally, she has founded BrainFit for Life, a freelance venture aimed at fostering dialogue between experts and the public on brain health. Her advocacy includes urging the Swiss Confederation to endorse a strategic research plan for brain aging, with a particular emphasis on early memory diagnostics. Lavinia envisions the development of an AI-driven brain health registry and a tailored brain health program. She holds a doctorate in neurobiology and neurosciences from Heidelberg University and has completed her postdoctoral research at Johns Hopkins University and the University of Fribourg and holds an MBA from University of Illinois. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lavinia Alberi-Albert to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Robbins. It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. When you reached out to us uh, because you heard of the podcast, I was really intrigued by your background. Maybe you could share a little bit about uh, your personal story and kind of what brought you to where you are today. I mean, quite a list of you know, not just degrees, but also companies that you're involved with and the associations. And I think there's some personal importance there, which I found, you know, many people have right in this field. Correct. My eagerness to find early diagnostic tools that really would allow for preventative strategies to occur, but also for patient segmentation and best therapeutic trajectory. And of course, as one of the many family that have been enduring dementia from one parent, well, I had my mother, she was very sick. She had FTD, frontotemporal dementia with ALS. And actually, she uh, started developing symptoms, which were at the time, still not clinically diagnosed when she was 50. So Clearly, I was actually at the time doing my postdoc happily at Johns Hopkins, (laughs) working on mechanism of memory. All of a sudden, my mother got sick. And of course, my academic path in the US had to stop and to come back to Europe. But uh, certainly during these years, and I've been around in this field for 23 years, starting looking at genetics for Parkinson, and then uh, really starting to mechanism of memory and neurodegeneration. Really, the biggest hurdle of all of those diseases is this very long asymptomatic phase where mechanisms are happening and pathophysiology is ongoing, but really nothing can be detected and there is very little intervention that can be done. So looking at the new developments in the new drugs that have been approved, I think those are drugs that are suitable for some people and they're the so-called foot-in-the-door drugs (laughs) that will open many more opportunity for for therapeutics. And uh, of course, therapeutics is only valuable when you can detect uh, early on some risk factors, something that could, you know, really determine that you convert or not. 
What is the state of that today? I think the state of it is getting better. I think blood biomarkers certainly are a non-invasive way to do a, a more surveillance, but still it's not in the clinic yet and it will be in the clinic soon, but it's two to three years to conversion. Okay. I think this is not enough. We know the asymptomatic phase of the disease for all those late onset is about 20 years. So what if we would have a surveillance method that would allow for people to get really monitored from their 40s on and engage into a preventative pathway. I think personally that most of the non-communicable and chronic diseases are preventable. People say well, you don't make money yeah. with prevention. fact is we save a lot of money and in the prospect of an aging population, we will yeah. all be living very long. We need to plan our years during our second jobs after retirement so that we really are not a burden on society. This is something that I think the national healthcare agencies, especially in Europe, are very sensitive to, the U.S. also, but somehow there's not enough research put into early detection. Yeah. And I just think there is not enough evidence. Currently, there is a lot of hype on microbiome, gut microbiome, oral microbiome. And I think there is a lot of truth into this, but at the same time, there's a lot more research to be done to really consolidate this evidence. Right. I mean, we're just at the beginning of a new era where early detection and preventative approaches are making sense also economically. Yeah, I think you, know, you bring up an important shift, right? We call it the healthcare system, but it's really sick care, right? Yeah. And this move towards healthcare is critically important, right? And yeah. I think we're in the awkward phase where we have to find the economic benefit to make the switch, but it's obviously there once we can have the right companion diagnostics or the right screening tools, as you're mentioning, because obviously some of these chronic diseases are so expensive in terms of long-term care. Absolutely. And also have a huge impact, obviously, on the quality of life for the people that they impact and their families. Yeah, and this is a silent population, and the relatives are typically the one taking part to the advocacy group. But I think it's, you know, economical burden for the society, especially for the relatives that would never need to plan in advance right. if you knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, diagnostic is better than no diagnostics, right? Sure. So is that a bit of the work that Brain Fit for Life is doing to try to start that conversation? Yeah, so Brentford for Life is actually an advocacy group that is composed of really expert in the field. And the reason why we wanted to have this consortium of, of individuals that are really prominent and can speak out with the right words, with the right knowledge, with the right jargon to the people was to inform you know, about the difference between brain aging, healthy brain aging, pathological brain aging. I think in Switzerland, there is a lot of stigma about aging in general, okay. although they're a very healthy population and um, clearly the outdoor you know, activities that everyone <laughs> performs is partially responsible for it. But certainly there is a lot of cultural stigma on brain diseases or neurological diseases. And uh, I think our effort was really to say you're born with a certain number of neurons and you start aging once you're born. Right. And this is basically the evolution of your brain and your neural function. You can, however, improve your brain health by 
practicing sport, having a natural nutrition, and of course, everyone knows it, having a very nurturing social environment. So I think that we embarked on this really to make brain health or brain research around brain health and aging more relevant. Because when I was researching the support for, for this type of project, well, there was a staggering difference between cancer, about 40 times more research was funded in cancer than on brain diseases. And yet the economic burden of the disease is much higher with brain diseases. And so we thought it was a time to bring this to the politician and say, we understand there is a stigma about this. Maybe it's not as relevant in your agenda, but it's still there, even if you know you have a very healthy population, but there is still a part of the population that has no say. And this is the proportion of the population is exactly the same in any other country. So there is no geographical boundary for late onset neurodegenerative diseases, unfortunately. So there must be something more to understanding really what triggers, what are those, you know, modifiable risk factor, right. but also what are the genetic predisposition and, and trying really to profile those individuals and adopt a better strategies. I've seen, you know, recently some announcements for some new, as you mentioned, therapeutics that have been approved to at least help slow some of the symptoms and progression of the disease, right? Yeah. Finally, there is interest in this field, although it's certainly not one of the sweet spots for biotech or pharma because the studies are very long. Typically long studies need a lot of financial commitment, but there is a huge need. Yeah. And I think if there is an improvement, let's say 20, 30%, there is an alleviation. Of course, some of the patients and patients' relatives are not so happy about all the bus right now about the new drugs. But right. I think literally those are the drugs that are opening and paving the way for others that it will be better. And I think that this was the case also for cancer at the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, if I've learned anything from my you know, professional experiences with bringing new technology you know, to the market, right? Having a pathway right, that you can follow is very helpful yeah. in understanding what you need to do to get your technology through. And certainly you need also to have a fertile you know, audience and people who want to listen to you sure. and that sees the opportunity. Because for a long time, the field has been marred by a lot of failures and yeah. When you were going to investors, they just did not, you know, they were turned in their heads and say, okay, it's an interesting project. But yeah. <laughs> so right now there is hope that projects that are on diagnostic and therapeutics in this field yeah. will have a little bit more impact in terms of getting funded. And I think that partially one of the big success was really the increased spending in the U.S. for Alzheimer's research. Yeah. And this basically opened a lot of the research that we are seeing right now, where we are really going to new realm and thinking about the disease when we are healthy and how we prevent the disease and how we prevent or stop this conversion. Right. Do you see a link in some of your work between these neurodegenerative diseases and overall wellness? I know you also have you know, quite a passion for health and wellness. Is there a link there? Is that what brought you? Definitely. Wellness is very global as a term, and you have parameters that define well-being, such as physical activity, sleep, nutrition, okay. 
also your weight because metabolism is really like the driver for a lot of us of many conditions. It's very linked to immunity. Okay. A lot of interest from my side looking at the interplay between immunity and metabolism and then as a bed for healthy long life or okay. more pathological long life. And I think this is what we are trying also to capture in our research that we are doing and we are soon depositing provisional patent okay. for those 16 biomarkers where we're going to look at salt renewal immunity and metabolism and try really to give a fingerprint of those individuals just through salivary sampling. Is that through the work you're doing at Vitalize DX? Yeah, exactly. Our mission was really, first of all, with this wellness company was to understand whether there was a market, whether people wanted to get tested and whether they were interested in the concept of monitoring and at the same time having results and recommendation for it. And so having this intersection between fluid biomarkers and which are really easy to obtain, sure. the biometric for global health gives you kind of a picture, a readout of right. your current well-being. I think that the effort we are doing right now is to see whether there is a market. And of course, there's much more of a market in countries like the US or countries where there is poor health care, where people are really embracing bottom-up their own you know, well-being, what it could be in Switzerland. But we're seeing traction. Yeah. And uh, I think that there is, of course, our product is not completely done. And now we're working since what, some time and automatizing our report because <laughs> we did have a report which were half, I would say, 70% human and 30% uh, artificial intelligence. And then now we want to go to the exact opposite <laughs> to really be able to deliver the reports with artificial intelligence, but supervised. What is the benefit you think that that'll provide your testing? It will allow to give faster response okay. and really also to adapt the responses to the individual and to have a track record of the individual. And of course, you can do all of this by hand or right. your human brain, but we're not very good at dimension reduction <laughs> typically. <laughs> and I think the artificial intelligence is allowing for sure. physically long-term and longitudinal readout of health with integration for suggestion and for recommendations. You know, there's a ton to be done there in the overall wellness in the space and understanding your personal wellness, like you mentioned. What was your real motivation behind Vitalize DX? Yeah, VitalSDX really starts in the wellness space, but very rapidly uh, we are establishing a health science section, okay. which will be really looking into profiling early detection of chronic diseases, of course, Alzheimer's sure. as the first one. We are also embracing cardiovascular disease, and then we will go into diabetes with an European project, hopefully. Okay. So I think that, of course, because the library diagnostic is so complex, because, of course, we don't know it as much, but certainly there is a lot of interest. First of all, I think that the oral health has a lot of truth and distinguishing between oral events and systemic events. 
and being able to capture through oral specimen systemic events, that is quite fascinating. And I think we are just beginning to understand this interplay. And of course, we know a lot about the keystone pathogens that are colonizing the mouth and how those can have effects systemically. But just right now, we're really trying to put this puzzle together and trying really to make this differential diagnostic and saying, yes, you do have oral gum infection, parodontitis, and you are at risk for systemic health, or you do have a systemic disease, the readout is in your oral compartment. So we are just at the beginning to really understand this. And saliva is very rich in biomarkers, was understudied and appreciated, I think. And now it's coming out because of its uh, really rich contact in nucleotides, protein, vesicles, of course, pathogens that could have an effect on overall health. So very interested. I've published before also in the oral microbiome in the progression of AD and with cross-sectional cohorts so that the microbial flora was changing with the progression of the disease. Interestingly enough, some of the bacteria were opportunistic, and it seems that this increase in opportunistic bacteria could then cause some of the cardiopathy in in those old individuals, just as a side effect. The most important part is not only our pathogens, the colonizing pathogens, but also the response of the host. So when you look at the saliva, you have both. You have the pathogens, the colonizing pathogens, and the response of the host. And how well the host responds to those pathogens is really key, and it really determines whether someone is at risk or not for conversion of pathological condition. Where did you um, first get introduced to saliva? I know Johns Hopkins does quite a fair amount of research on saliva. Was it in your postdoc, or is it in your current research now? No, actually, in my postdoc, I was very uh, keen in understanding mechanism of memory. So I work on a pathway that is responsible for plasticity. So I was very neuron-centric, brain-centric. And (laughs) then really in the evolution of my career, when I started seeing that I was studying genes, but effectively, I should have studied environment (laughs) that have an effect on genes. I moved a little bit towards more sporadic form of the disease, and we basically started looking at at human samples, at the olfactory bulb of human samples, really trying to understand how the architecture of this structure was changing over time. And uh, of course, the olfactory a root is a port of entry for species, for many pathogenic species. Mm-hmm. And so I got interested in looking into herpes viruses. And from then on, basically, the story continued. And I developed one sterile infection model where the animal has chronic infection and chronic inflammation. And this animal, it's completely naive, but eventually develops a form of vascular ID. So very, very strongly, very massive telepathy, deficit in olfaction, deficit in memory, microglia changes, and eventually we have an increase in angiogenesis and really a vascular pathology. This is just by basically inducing chronic inflammation and opening up the blood-brain barrier to cytokines that from the periphery get into the brain. 
And so this basically, and of course, in those animals, we were sampling blood, we were sampling CSF, we were sampling brain, any organ possible, but we were also sampling saliva and uh, okay. saliva was giving a good readout in terms of the innate response. And then, of course, we started looking into humans and we had this uh, clinical cohort in the hospital in the memory clinic where we basically used uh, olfactory discrimination and cognitive discrimination to identify patients that are cognitively healthy and also olfactory healthy. So that we call them cognitively normal healthy. And then those that had olfactory deficit that could have been at risk. And of course, the MCI and then the AAD. And we saw that there was this evolution of the microbiome in those, and they're all microbiome in those subjects. So it looks uh, as something is happening. We know right now that surely periodontitis is one of the big trigger in terms of chronic inflammation, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes. Most likely it will be also the case for Alzheimer's. How this uh, comes to play is still very difficult to understand. But I think that there is evidence from the literature that effectively those pathogens could eventually land in the brain and cause an amyloidosis, and so an antimicrobial reaction where amyloid is basically trapping those pathogens. And this could be the case for performance gingivalis or other oral pathogens that evade the oral environment, but it's also the case for herpes virus that have direct access and kind of a neurotropism for the brain. Clearly, there has been a lot of research on like connection between oral and systemic health, right? And I think you're kind of touching on that topic now. I mean, there's so much more to be done. We are just really at the beginning. And certainly good oral health, you know, your teeth don't only look good and, you know, clean, but certainly you're setting yourself for a healthier path. I think this was a little bit underestimated before and, and dentists were seeing this association but really understanding mechanisms is always we, we see associations and then understanding mechanisms yes. it's the job of the neurobiologist to put those stuff together and really looking at what happens if we put pathogen in contact with ipscs or pathogens in contact with neurons i mean and typically what happens is that there is a lot of inflammatory cytokines being generated, especially if you have okay. astroglia around uh, or microglia, and uh, amyloid kind of has this functional trap mission for uh, against uh, pathogens. Okay. And being those uh, bacteria, viral, fungi, I mean, it doesn't really matter, basically. Where are you today with Vitalized DX, and what are the types of tests that you're offering? I mean, we established a company in February. Wow, congratulations. It's going. It could be going faster, but I want a fast path. (laughs) I think every entrepreneur would agree with you there. (laughs) Yes. We are currently in the B2C, establishing B2B contracts. I think that Switzerland is is a great test bed to really trying to accommodate all those different languages. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And there is also a public that is used to innovation. So okay. if we do make small mistakes, they're really accepting it because we're a startup. They don't drag us down. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, of course, it's a small country and the health system is a very, very well organized. It's a private health system, but people 
are not so prone to buy out of pocket. So it's not a country where we will see scale, but it's a country that allows us to really prototype and have a test bed. So soon in this week, I will go to Italy and I think that we'll establish a logistic hub for Europe that will really be able to cater to a bigger audience and a bigger customer base rather than what we see in Switzerland. You mentioned the 16 biomarkers. Are those the first tests that you're bringing to the market? or No, the first drug we have brought to market are the hormones okay. because we had a very good experience with the steroidal hormones. We have very good readouts in saliva and those are IBDR and we buy them from Taken and we are very satisfied with the result. So whereas the 16 biomarkers is more our soup okay. and it will have to get approval and somehow we will have to make a pilot for that too. But didn't want to really start with something that we are convinced about the results, but where we cannot show that it's IBDR. And uh, we wanted to make sure that we will deliver something that it's really consistent over time and that it's not something that could be variable just because we don't have enough data, you know? I see. And this is why we were comfortable in starting selling as soon as we incorporated because we had a test and those combo tests for the steroidal hormones that still are capturing basically hormonal balance, which is also part of the personalized wellness pathway. I see. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about what you're doing now and, and what's to come, but you know, what do you see as the next couple of steps um, aside from scaling? Yeah, certainly in the saliva uh, domain, I see a lot of opportunity for investigation, especially for those diseases that seems to be triggered by dysbiosis, okay. whether oral dysbiosis and gut dysbiosis, you know, are completely aligned. We don't know. We certainly know that some species do land in the gap. Certainly, there's a lot that will be done in the oral diagnostics. With other co-founder, we have established the Alzheimer Pathobiome Initiative. Okay. And this is really a consortium endeavor where we will try to establish whether microbes are really you know, the culprit of Alzheimer or the other brain diseases. There's been a lot of emphasis put into herpes virus, for example, EBV for multiple sclerosis, or recently HIV, chlamydia pneumonia for Alzheimer. But I think there's so much data and so dispersed, and there's been so much debate, and rightfully, we really need to go about this in you know, to really establish whether there is a pathobiome and this is causative by doing as many replication as possible in as many different labs as possible, and then combine the result at the same time. In the past, uh, there was a lot of siloed domain and before neurologists were not talking to microbiologists and now we're not talking to immunologists. And now we are experiencing a time where Things are coming together and uh, we can put a lot of more power in understanding diseases from their multifactorial perspective. And so definitely this is a project that I'm very committed to with numerous very famous researcher and investigator. Excellent. And where I see that salivary diagnostic has a great power in capturing those changes. As you mentioned, 
saliva has a lot of power, right? Not that it's not understood, but fairly, you know, recent in the scientific literature, right? And so building that database and the information is key to more adoption. And I think the multi cross-disciplinary approaches is probably more powerful, right? Absolutely. You know, one approach is, can we just build the evidence that correlates certain biomarkers, you know, concentration in saliva to blood as an example, yeah. but really understanding the cause and effect between what you can measure in saliva and neurological impact or cardiovascular, right? I think has the power to unlock more benefit as you're researching. Yeah, absolutely. And the saliva is not a complete surrogate of blood, as blood is not a complete surrogate of CSF, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, we need to, to see really the properties of each biofluid and what each biofluid really tells us. But certainly saliva has a rich biological repertoire and can tell us a lot about this health status of the individual. And certainly it can tell us by, about the oral hygiene. First of all, yes. <laughs> it's sure. a very straightforward. I actually have a collaboration with the university where they are investigating oral health in athletes. And athletes are typically very healthy, but they're not having a very good oral health because they just disregard to clean their teeth and they don't have time. <laughs> Those extra two minutes before when you wake up and go to bed are, are challenging. <laughs> exactly. It's actually interesting to, to see those parallel. And there is some association between bad oral health or geopathy. And we know that some athletes, unfortunately, do are subject of uh, cardiopathy. And this could really come from the oral health. So this is something that we are expanding in our capacity as vitalized diagnostic, looking at uh, oral health in the prospect of really systemic well-being, basically. As we kind of explore what you're thinking and looking at in you know, neurological disorders and, and saliva, any other advice or things you'd impart on our listeners? Yeah, one line of evidence where I'm just trying to put together this grant application is just really the beginning. We are looking at vesicles and uh, we asked, uh, you know, we interrogate those vesicles in saliva and we asked ourselves, where those vesicles, do those vesicles come from? This is also extremely interesting because we know that the parasympathetic system that regulates saliva production is actually affected early on. So you could imagine that maybe if you do find neuronal brain-derived UV, maybe you could capture those uh, dysfunction early on. So I think besides the soluble marker that are easy to detect, those are like the insoluble or vesicle-bound uh, biomarkers, those are extremely interesting. Okay. And this is something that is just beginning to be explored. There is very little research being done, or at least good research that is well-financed and can really <laughs> get to the point. And of course, there's so many perils you have to do, right? You're, you're not good enough, whether you do the vesicle in CSF, but you need to do the parallel CSF for blood. And saliva and you know try really to track down all those bits and pieces it takes a lot of time it takes typically big teams and also big funding and i think yeah. that for a long time the funding was not on the side of salivary diagnostic because people <laughs> were saying well how would you you know determine sensitivity well specificity okay you can determine but it is known that you have a lot of 
circadian expression in saliva. There is a lot of variability. Right. You know, when is a good time? So this type of skepticism, I think, did not really help the field. I'm getting more and more also grants to review in this direction that actually are proposing to do those small steps, trying to first look at the oral microbiome, the pathogens, then slowly to other markers in saliva, proteins, inflammatory markers. And then, you know, the big story is whether we can find brain-derived biomarkers. And uh, certainly there is a, a big proportion of the salivary protein, which is shared with the CSF, whether those are, are really coming from nerve structure, we don't know it at this point. Right. Some of the evidence seems to say so. It was just recently a paper on ALS. ALS, of course, is a terrible disease and uh, really struck yeah. individuals in their adult life earlier than what Alzheimer's disease does. Anything that really you know, helped those individuals to be diagnosed early and into therapeutic trajectory, that would be really very, very wishful. Impactful, very impactful. Yeah, I think incredible the commitment to the science that you have, right? And the ability for you to impact such a wide field. It's daunting. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell the weight that you have. Yeah, but certainly we have a, a lot of opportunity now. And I think that there is just the funding that has to go with. Yeah. This is not always easy to gather. Some fields are better funded than others. Yeah. Fields are just uh, more attractive than others right now. I believe there is currently a big surge in interest in celebrity diagnostic, and rightfully so. It was a niche that was really not tapped upon yeah. for a very long time. It was just used for really for forensic purposes, yeah. barely. <laughs> so there is a lot of saliva tech out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, they were used for their purpose, right? Sure. I think that's the mission that we have here, right, is to help bring saliva diagnostics to the forefront. and. I think the more research that people do and publish and the more great work of people like yourselves will help to spin the wheels, right? The flywheel of the research and the grants that will come to allow us to dive deeper and uncover more discoveries. Definitely. And I think that because of the accessibility of saliva, it does not stay as a basic research. There is a big switch with salivary diagnostic to application. And this, I think, is one of the main difference right now that a lot of the researchers that are working on salivary diagnostic have also stakes in companies and, and want to see okay. those products come to fruition. Again, there is a lot of change right now because of the pressure to detect as soon as possible and actually embrace health trajectories rather than disease trajectory. So Ivor really allows this change in perspective, right? And this is why there is a lot of more emphasis in application than what research, maybe on blood, as a monitoring biofluid, even before COVID, saliva really came to be a fantastic tool for detecting COVID Absolutely. in a very non-invasive and accessible way. Yeah, you can easily see the switch of people being more willing to take their healthcare into their own control, right? Or, or try to get access to that information, right? Absolutely. And it's uh, definitely this change in bottom-up movement and where, of course, medical doctors will be involved. Absolutely. But at this time, you know, this force bottom-up is so strong that it's going to be even more bigger than the resistance that doctors may have towards some applications because it's just people want, I mean, they don't want to get sick. Right. It's just too expensive. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. I think your commitment to the science with your entrepreneurial spirit, right? And really, I think this multidisciplinary approach that you take between your background in neurobiology and salivary diagnostics, right? position you as a prominent figure here. You know, I think the the work you've done on neurological disorders with, you know, Vitalized DX, you know, is going to hopefully pave the way for cost-effective, accessible, personalized health and wellness solutions. Yeah. And I appreciate your perspective on advancing therapeutics for dementia. I share a personal story with some members of my family, and I think the approach you're taking is fantastic to promote brain health and inspiring other people to join in and take to bring more research into this field. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and hearing your story and your insights and wisdom Thank in you. the neurological and diagnostic space. I'm sure that our listeners have taken away a lot of information and if they can do anything to help, really we need to bring more research into this multidisciplinary field. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.